Yure, or the land of the hummingbird, is how the two southernmost islands in the Caribbean were known until 1497. In that year, Christopher Columbus took a more southerly route on his third trip to the region and came up near Venezuela, where he first viewed the islands and their three characteristic mountain peaks. And from that day, the territory would be known as Trinidad, in a reference to the conquistadors' holy trinity. Since 1498, the Spanish took control of Trinidad, later substituted by the British, who dominated until 1962 when the country became first independent. French Creoles and slaveholders were the first to establish themselves in the British settlement wave, bringing with them the violent slavery regime that would deeply influence the country even after the abolishment of slavery in 1834. Throughout the years, uh, Indian, Chinese, Portuguese, and Lebanese groups also came to the territory, resulting in a multicultural, multi-religious society where racial tensions are present until this day. Currently, Trinidad and Tobago's education system is ruptured by an ethnic and religious divide. Traditional religious-based schools provide good quality education, whereas post-colonial non-religious schools are marked by poor quality, violence, and disbelief towards its students. In this episode, we will explore the connections between Trinidad and Tobago's colonial history and its current school violence. Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. This show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hello, welcome to our show. I'm Rachel Kirk, your host for this episode. Today we'll be talking to Hakim Mohandas Amani-Williams. He is an Associate Professor of Africana Studies and the Director of Peace and Justice Studies at Gettysburg College. He also has an EDD in International Education Development and Peace Education from Teachers College at Columbia University. He's also a former visiting scholar at AC4, the center behind this show. In 2017, he was a recipient of one of the inaugural Emerging Scholar Awards of the African Diaspora Special Interest Group in the Comparative and International Education Society, or CIES. He also received the Early Career Award from Teachers College in 2019. We're so excited to be talking to him today, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome, Hakim. Thank you for being here with us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's, it's really nice to be back in my old stomping grounds here at Columbia University. Um, okay, so a lot of your research and work has focused on education and schooling in Trinidad and Tobago. Can you tell us a bit about how the education system has been organized throughout this time and throughout history? Mm-hmm. So let's let's start back. So I, you know, I'm not a historian, but I love right. reading history. And it's important always to retether the contemporary to the historical, right? And so... Without that historicity, we take the contemporary in a vacuum. So I'm interested in violence in schools, and there are many persons who are concerned with violence in schools in Trinidad as well as around the world, including here in the United States. And often lots of the rhetoric and the interventions that are emerging from that rhetoric around school violence, they treat it in a very ahistorical way. Not everyone, but many people do. And I think that's why the interventions are doomed to fail time and time again. So with, with that as a preface, <clears throat> before I can talk about violence in, in today's schools in Trinidad, I have to talk about the violence that birthed the country, right? Because slavery and colonialism, they're not, they're not non-violent interventions, right? They were, they were quite violent, right? When you think of lynchings and, and raping of women, and castrations to, to keep to emasculate men and teach a lesson. Um, that kind of public spectacle of violence um, was 
meant to be a disciplinary technology, right, to create docile bodies. And I think that docility lingers on into the post-colonial era. And we see a sort of um, lack of proactivity when it comes to some of our contemporary issues. So going more specifically into the history of education in Trinidad, um, slaves were not given any kind of education apart from missionary education. So the missionaries uh, who came, they would teach uh, slaves about the Bible because it was all about la mission civilisatrice, civilizing the, the savage, so to speak, right? That's, that's their language. That's their rhetoric. And so any sort of education that slaves got, it was steeped in, in the Bible. It was steeped in religion, right? Um, and so then at the end of slavery, slaves were, um, were the formerly enslaved were very much interested in, in becoming educated, as you can understand, right? <clears throat> there still were not many opportunities for them to become educated. They really had access only to primary school education and not really secondary school education because during those times, the, the white landowners, they believed that if you educated slaves and former slaves uh, too much, it would lead to revolution and rebellion. Um, like, duh. <laughs> um, and so that is sort of the colonial history in Trantabago, where now you're entering into the era of independence, and now you want to build a nation state, and the leaders are recognizing that mass education can play a, a pivotal role. So as you see the body politic clamoring for education in Trinidad, um, which is a very exciting time in Trinidad. But so you go from a space and time where hardly anyone is getting education to now almost everybody wanting it. Um, and of course, in a multi-ethnic society where there are racial tensions, largely between the Indian population, the African population, because the Indians came as indentured laborers, and at the end of their indentureship, they got land. And we know that land is the basis for wealth generation. Um, slaves, when slavery ended, didn't get any land, right? So therefore, they relied on, on the state um, to provide lots of jobs. Um, and whereas the Indians um, had their land and they were able to grow crops and build homes and generate wealth that way. And so therefore, these two groups were vying for state control. It's why we now have two political parties that are ethnic-based in Trinidad. It's very similar to Guyana. Um, when unfortunately Guyana, you have more violence when it comes to politics. In Trinidad, we don't have as much um, violence in politics, but we definitely have lots of division when it comes to ethnic politics. And so that seeps seeps out in interesting ways into our educational system because the educational system now in Trinidad and Tobago is divided according to various religions. And so some of the top schools in Trinidad are all religiously affiliated and they were built in the colonial era. So part of my argument is that when we look at physical violence in schools today, we have to tether that, what I call the structural balance of the educational system in Trinidad, because it's a bifurcated educational system where the top performing schools are religiously affiliated and were built in the colonial era, and they have some of the, the better trained teachers, they get the best resources in Trinidad, and then you have kids who come from poorer backgrounds, they go to schools that were built in the post-colonial era, they're generally not religiously affiliated, they're not well-funded, in fact, they're woefully underfunded, and to me, that is a form of violence. And so that's a long way of giving a context for understanding when we see physical or material direct violence happening in schools. Um, obviously, you are talking about the discrepancy of resources, the religious connections, these things. But what is kind of the everyday um, legacy of this for students? Like, what does this, how does this manifest for the everyday of students, upward mobility? That kind of thing. Yeah, that's a that's a complex question. Yeah, um, so one in my research, I write about uh, discursive violence. Before I can get to talking about um, the material impacts on on children's lives, I write about discursive violence, and that's not a term that that I that I created. So discursive violence is the violent ways in which we talk about violence. And so it happens here in the States, it happens in Trinidad, that when we write about violence in schools, uh, many people connect that to violence in children's communities, violence in their homes, 
right? And that is not untrue. Yes, violence is happening in their communities. Violence is happening in their home. Um, there are many kids who are being sexually abused. There are many kids who are coming to, to school hungry. There are many kids who they need glasses, but they can't afford it. So therefore, they can't really read the stuff on the board. So therefore, they are acting out so as to mask uh, that particular need. Um, you have police violence in some communities. You have dr drug um, drug wars in communities. You have gang warfare, especially um, in the communities where I grew up, um, one called Laventil. People often don't talk about the structural violence of the educational system. They don't talk about how schools are being under-resourced and how that may be linked to the ways in which kids are acting out in schools or the ways in which our colonial history has created a bifurcate, a dual educational system where generally poorer kids, not all, because I was a poor kid and I, I thank goodness I, I got into one of the, the, the top performing schools, but that's not the case for most children who come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And so, so to me, that disconnect is a form of violence and that is discursive violence, the ways in which we talk about violence that we, we generally keep it to material or direct violence. You know, say kids in schools are cursing our teachers or they're fighting a lot or there was a stabbing in school that these, and you hear notions of these kids being savage or that we need really punitive measures. Um, same thing here in the States here. When you see like a gun shooting, people want to give guns to teachers or they want to have more police in communities. And, and those things are not inherently problematic, though I am against many of those measures in and of themselves, but also in isolation. But all of these things ha have to occur in a systematic, coordinated fashion. And to me, that's why these interventions do not, do not, um, have a better impact over the long term. So to now answer your other question more explicitly, what are some of the interior material impacts on students? And so um, a few years ago, I went into, so I've been going to one school of the past 10 years. So I'm trying not to, not to generalize, but I, I do believe some aspects are generalizable because anecdotally, many teachers tell me that this is happening across their schools as well. I went into a first form class, and so first form is probably sixth grade in the United States. And um, it was a class of 21 boys, all boys, because they were dividing the boys from the girls because they believed that the boys were more violent and that they were holding back the girls from their educational attainment, which is a problematic characterization to begin with. 21 boys in this classroom. And I'm asking the boys about some of their ambitions in life. And, and I said, I work in the States. And if you're interested ever in coming to the States, I could perhaps find you a scholarship, et cetera. And then one, one kid, he's like maybe 14, 15 years old. He says to me kind of sheepishly, he says, he says, I don't think so, sir. I, you know, I, I don't think I'm capable of, of doing that. And I said, I said, why? He said, I, I just don't think I am smart enough to, to do that. And I'm like, here is this kid in sixth grade where a kid should have wild ambitions and dreams for themselves. And already this kid has internalized the message, what I call a politics and, and education of a pedagogy of disposability. That this kid has internalized this on educational system that has told him that he is stupid. Right? Um, and I actually heard teachers not telling this kid specifically at this school telling children, you know, you're dumb, you can't do this or stuff like that. And so it's not only teachers telling kids that individually, but also the system telling those children that they've written them off from the minute they get into these kinds of schools. And so even their parents tell them that, you know, they're like, you got into the school, you didn't do well. And so why am I even investing in your future? So that really broke my heart. I returned two years later for that same class. Now they're in eighth grade and half of that class had dropped out of school. And of course, they dropped out for many reasons. There are some kids who pivoted to doing vocational ed at other schools. There are some kids who have been recruited into gangs in the communities. Some kids are in, in, in juvenile prison. Um, some kids may be dead. That's a reality because Trinidad has a very high homicide rate, one of the highest per capita in the Western Hemisphere. I, I give that story sort of anecdotally to, to show you how Many kids are feeling rejected by the system. They internalize it and therefore they drop out of school. And the government is not tracking these students. So we don't really know what's happening to them. Are some migrating to the U.S.? Maybe. Are some in prison or some dead, as I mentioned before? Some are working at a grocery stand, some are being a janitor. Not that anything is wrong with those, but you have some of the kids who start off with grand ambitions in life 
And then you realize that the educational system, it isn't really catering to these students um, and to some of the, they are malnourished educationally. Many of them cannot read. Um, and so they need some, some remedial education. But the system is not interested in those kinds of students, you know? Um, and so then you recognize that, of course, upper mobility, as you mentioned before, is imperiled because the students, the kids are not leaving school with the skills that they need to navigate um, this contemporary global economy, which is becoming more complicated, as you're aware of. So obviously there is a historical context that's very specific and unique to Trinidad and Tobago. But how do you kind of connect the global intersections of that with history in other places and with education in other places? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you asked. Yeah. So, you know, Walter Mignola writes about the logic of coloniality, right? That that wasn't just during the colonial era, but it lingers into into the contemporary era, right? And so I call those lingering colonialities, right? Um, the vestiges that we, we see all around us today, things that we can apprehend very easily, the things that we can feel that we can't fully articulate and the things that are completely invisible to us, but we very much feel them in our psyches and in our bodies. Those are lingering colonialities, right? And so the colonial history to me is replicated in today's neo-colonial global order. And so to understand contemporary Trinidad and the violence that is there, we have to understand the violence of our global community. So Trinidad and Tobago sits close to Venezuela, right? There are lots of drugs making its way from South America um, to feed the ravenous appetite in the United States and Europe. It has to find a way to get here. In the United States, which has been clamping down on the Mexican border, that means the drugs have to find another way to get in. Trinidad has become one of the top transshipment points for drugs making in the world, come, making its way from South America to the United States. We know that when drugs are moving, it's often guns are moving with the drugs as well. When the drugs enter Trinidad, the drugs move on, but the guns stay, right? And where are the guns staying? The guns are often staying in, in economically disadvantaged communities like the one where I grew up laughing until, right? Once you have, um, Guns staying and you have, you have, um, you have drugs. Obviously, you're going to have, um, people who need to sell them. So you're going to have lots of gangs. And so we have seen a proliferation of gangs in Trinidad in especially poor communities. We have seen, um, more guns in Trinidad, which is in direct correlation to a global proliferation of small weapons, which are usually made by the top nations on the Security Council, right? Um, and so, and you know, you obviously see the irony behind that, right? And so we have a global proliferation of small arms. And so then you have small arms staying in Trinidad. You have a burgeoning uh, drug, drug, um, drug war occurring. You have already economically depressed communities. And to me, that creates the perfect storm, right? And so when I look at violence in schools, the kids are talking they're not talking about the structural violence of sort of global political economy that I just demarcated, but they're talking about, sir, I'm turning 16 next year and the gang leader on my block is telling me drop out of school and come join this gang and don't join that particular gang, right? Um, and of course, I'm understanding what's fueling all of that. And so I have conversations with these kids because part of my research is not just extracting data from these children, because although I am Trinidadian, if I'm only extracting information and not giving back to me, I'm also being a colonizer. And I'm trying to disrupt me doing that. I'm also trying to disrupt the ways in which Trinidadians or people of color or people in developing countries engage with researchers from the North generally, from the West, right? And so I try to have these conversations with these students so that as Paulo Ferry calls it, conscientization. I'm not going to try to even pronounce the Brazilian word. Um, that consciousness raising that I want these, these students to come away from this research interaction with a greater sense of the structural violence in which their lives are embedded. Um, and so I'm often trying to connect the global, the regional, the national, the local, the school. And trying to bring all of those tears together that they recognize that 
whatever is happening in their life, it is it is connected to our history and it's connected to global economy. Um, and so with that said, you can understand now why any intervention that I am trying to create in Trinidad, that it has to be slow, it has to be um, methodical, it has to be on multiple tiers. I try to intervene on the policy level. I try to intervene with parents, the community level. I try to expose children to um, articles from abroad. I try to break it down because we know that in the academy, it's all this kind of crazy jargon that nobody reads or understands. Um, but most people, I should say the layperson generally is not engaging with that, with that information. And so um, I'm trying to create a uh, systemic intervention. I'm trying to build capacity within students, with parents, in communities, hopefully among policymakers, so that over time we can create a different logic to counteract the logic of coloniality, which is very much residual and very much still at play. What are your suggestions for how to address some of this violence now that's so like rooted or the everyday life of so many people? Ooh, where does one begin? It, it is, <clears throat> on some days it feels rather insurmountable. I will admit, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to lie. And I say that as a preface to diminish hubris, to take a step back that, that by myself I cannot fix anything, that no one policymaker, no one prime minister no one community leader, um, no one IMF loan can, no one educational silver bullet can fix these issues. Um, so that's not to say that we ought not try. My preface is meant to give us pause and some humility in the face of, of these issues. So I think what's missing is first and foremost, bringing people from very different backgrounds to the same table. Often policymakers will not sit with parents from disadvantaged communities. They will not sit with the gang leader. They will not sit with the youth who has dropped out of school. All of those persons should be in conversation with each other. Um, and it takes, it takes bold leadership to do that. It also requires a leadership, a kind of servant leadership that you don't have all of the answers that <clears throat> even myself going to Columbia University, getting my doctorate here. When I step into that space, yes, I know the Trinidadian context very well. It birthed who I am today, but I try to enter that space with a disposition of being a learner, being a student. Um, yes, I have. I don't make it a false equivalency that I, I do have lots, lots more knowledges and specialized knowledges than the students, but they also have their own localized specialized knowledges. And I try to go in <clears throat> with an authentic heart of, I want to learn from you. Your, vi your voices are valuable. Your knowledges are valuable, no matter what the system tells you. And how can we create a space where you sit up chest out believing that your voice is important, that you have something valuable to say, that this nation-building enterprise is incomplete without your voice and your energy and your vision. And so I try to instill in the children a kind of confidence because I want to see them create a different Trinidad, a Trinidad that is inclusionary and not one that's exclusionary, which is part of the logic of coloniality. We create these hierarchies of ontology, these hierarchies of entry point into policy, these hierarchies of having a say in, in where this nation needs to go. And so all that to say that I want to be at the table. I also want my kids to be at the table. I want parents who, who can't read, but who have who have vast ambitions for their own children to be at the table. I want policymakers, I want other sociologists to be at the table. And so um, that's eventually where my research is going, that I want to eventually bring all of those persons more into conversation. Because 
whatever intervention I have, and we could talk more about that I have, I'm creating and piloting a model called systemic restorative praxis in communities, and it is a smaller version of this. But eventually, I want communities to take on that model, customize it for their own communities, and start talking to other communities. And to me, that's the only way we can be able to see any kind of, even if it's minuscule, because I believe that the shifts are going to be minuscule and arduous and slow. I don't believe in any sort of quick switch, any quick change, because any quick change, it means that you have left out somebody, that you have, you have run roughshod over some historical understanding. And so to bring all those things together means that we have to take our time, but that doesn't mean that we can't take our time, but also work with a sense of urgency. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the uh, systemic restorative praxis that you were developing mm-hmm. to get more into that? Sure. <clears throat> Let's break down the name because the name, the nomenclature is important yeah, and the etymology of that. So at the core of it is that R word called restorative, right? And it's driven by by three R's, right? And so... Restorative comes from restorative justice, which many indigenous groups around the world practice for millennia. And that we in the West, we in the North, we have we're forgotten and that we're now returning to. Um, and, and the ways in which we're returning to it, some of those ways are kind of problematic. And we could talk about that um, separately. But I want to give the nod to many indigenous groups um, that originated restorative justice. Um, at its core, it is not about expelling anyone from the community because indigenous groups believe that no matter how egregious your harm, that you're the fisherman. <laughs> you are getting fish for this community. So all you have heard this community, you still play a vital role in who we are, in our, in our survivance. And so in community, you make amends for the hurt that you have rendered on the community, but that you stay in community. So that is hard, but it's a powerful lesson for us. How can we keep people in community who have hurt us? Now, I'm not saying everybody ought to do that. So if, say, for example, I don't believe restorative justice is applicable, let's say, um, in a child sex abuse scenario. I, I don't believe a child should be sitting in a circle with a pedophile using restorative justice model, right? So that's an extreme I'm bringing up, but, you know, so I don't believe it's, it's appropriate in all settings. However, I do, I do believe its ethos is something really beautiful. How, especially in this age of cancel culture, where someone does something and we immediately want to cancel them. Well, some folks should be canceled, yes, but, but for the most part, how do we keep people in community, right? So part of what I call critical grace, How do we still hold people accountable? How do we still have a critical engagement with them? How do we interrogate the harm that they've rendered? But how do we do it with grace, right? How do we still keep people roped in to our larger human family saying, you are still a part of us. My destiny is still bound up with who you are. How can we keep you in community while you still make amends for what you have done? So that is at the core of my practice here. So lots of the kids who are being pushed out from the educational system, right? I go to those schools in parents who live in economically disadvantaged communities. I work with those parents because those parents and those students are forgotten by the state. They are written off. They're called hotspots. They're called danger zones. Um, and I, I want to interrupt that cycle of people internalizing those messages. I want people to remember, first and foremost, their rich humanity, that I'm a human being. I am not disposable. I should not be forgotten by the government. I should not be written off by my nation state. And so restorative justice is at the core of that. So I teach parents and students restorative circles as a form of conflict resolution um, and capacity building. And some of the parents then tell me that they're using restorative uh, circles in their home with their families, they're using it in schools, they're using it in their church, 
um, the students are using it in some of their schools when it comes to peer mediation. You know, it's not it's not all all successful, but there it's a trial and error. They're using some of these skills to independently interrupt violence in their communities using non-violent technologies. Yeah. So that's a that's a philosophy that undergirds um this pilot, but also part of it is skills building and capacity building. Because if if we don't equip people with skills and capacities to be able to re-envision their their present lives and alternative uh, futures, then then we are doomed. And I can't create it for them. They often say, Dr. Williams, please come back and run for office. And you know, and I said, no, 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 no. I am doing this with you, but you are the leaders in your own community. I am not the leader. You live here and I want to follow you. Yes, I'm sharing some skills with you, but I want you to, one, customize these skills, scale up these skills, throw it out if you no longer find them useful um, for your lives, but they do find them useful because every year they're like, please come back and teach us more. And so there's an appetite um, among these parents and students for these knowledges, for these skills. The other part of it is praxis. Praxis comes from, from Paulo Freire. And praxis is a combination of critical reflection and critical action. Paulo Freire says that if you just reflect without action, that is no good. And if you're just acting in the world without any critical reflection of your action in the world, that is no good either. So you need a synergy between critical reflection, critical action to create a feedback loop, which he calls praxis. So I am trying to do that in Trinidad where my intervention is the critical action where I'm doing it not by myself, but in community with the parents and the students, then we critically reflect on that intervention and we tweak the problems, we see how it needs to be fixed, and then we critically intervene again. So it becomes a cycle so that people understand that intervening is not a one-time thing, which is part of the logic of coloniality, right? It is part of contemporary policy making where you, you create a policy package, you implement it, and then you move on. I want to show folks that policy making and learning and intervening should be a feedback loop, right? So that's a praxis piece. Then the systemic piece with systemic restorative praxis. The systemic piece is that we have to try and connect, right? The history to the present so we can better understand the future. And then we should also, um, connect the global to the regional, to the national, to the local to the intrapersonal and the interpersonal, so that we bring all of those groups vertically together, all of those tiers vertically, and as well horizontally. So it creates this interesting axis that the person, yes, is at the center of that, but they understand that they are radiating outward into the future, into the past, and from inside their person upward to the global back and forth. And so that is how I've... uh, conceptualize this systemic restorative praxis. And the way that plays out is that I do these trainings with parents and students, and then they have to train someone, someone else or some other people. So they pass on those skills. And so then it becomes a ripple effect over time. I know that this, this, this pilot is probably going to be the next 20, 30 years because colonialism and slavery lasted 500 years in the Americas. We cannot think that we can undo, that we can decolonize in just a few years. I said Trinidad became independent in 1962. Um, and many people, um, critique the country for a lot of the fumbles it's making. It necessarily must make fumbles. That's also part of the learning, right? But how are we making the fumbles? How are we learning? Um, I, I want us to create a critical disposition around failure. That we just don't cancel people. We just don't cancel our failures. How can we pluck learnings from them? And how can we not just write off people? How can we not just dispose people when things are not going our way? So you were born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. I imagine this plays a very important role in how you engage with students, with parents, with community members there. Is this information that you emphasize when you're doing this work? How do you think about that position? So I was born in a community called Laventil. It it sits on on the hills um, 
overlooking the capital. So as you can imagine, it's it's probably prime real estate if ever they want to get those uh, those squatters um, out of there. Not everyone is squatters, but many people are. As I mentioned, when slavery ended, um, slaves did not get any land. And lots of the commerce was around the capital, Port of Spain. And so therefore, if you have a population that doesn't have land, can barely read, um, they want to stay close to where the commerce is, um, they many end up squatting. And they end up squatting up on the mountaintops. It's very similar to favelas in Rio. Um, and I went to Rio a number of years ago and, and that also opened my eyes to understanding global political economy, right? And understand how the logic of coloniality is, is all around the world. It may look different, it may be in different languages, but they are replicated time and space again, again, and again. So, grew up in love until, um, single mother, she had me when she was eight, 17, she dropped out of high school because she was pregnant. Um, so she never got a high school diploma, which, change the trajectory of her life, right? So so when I talk about these students, I'm also talking about my own family, my own my my mother, right? My grandmother helped raise us and then my mom had a second a second son. So it was four of us sleeping on one bed um in a in a two room apartment in Lavantil, outdoor toilet, outdoor kitchen. And so when I'm working with these children who come from these poor backgrounds and they are sharing these very similar stories. I also share my own story so that, because I think when the kids look at me now, they see, oh, Dr. Williams, and they see me, you know, well-dressed and, and, and well-spoken in quotes, um, went to Columbia University in the United States. He's a, a tenured professor. I, I want the kids to not ignore that because those things are definitely who I am and they contribute partially to my outsider status. But I also have this insider status. And of course, there's a, it's not naturally fluid. There's a tension between those two, which we could talk about later on. Um, but I think that the dialectic that is emergent from my insider, outsider, uh, positionality, it, it helps to keep me on my own toes. It helps me stay self-reflexive about the ways in which I might just be extracting and not being um, not giving back to the communities in which I should be. So it keeps me accountable, right? And so I absolutely share where I'm from with these kids, my own struggles to show them that when you want something in life, you have to just keep on pushing and plodding along, but that you need community to help you that, that I didn't make it without not just the ancestors on whose shoulders I stand, but many other people who intervene to help me along the way and so therefore i'm also intervening to help them be be their best selves linked to that um is my interrogation of people who are not from particular communities doing research in those communities and it's not to say that they cannot be in those communities that they're not from to do the work but i don't think they're often reflexive to the extent that they should be they don't they don't sufficiently ask themselves why Am I here? Why me? Why these peoples? Why this question asking of them? And how am I giving back? How am I investing in this community? I went to a conference um, in Europe several years ago. And um, it was a small conference, a convening of Caribbeanists. We were mostly white. Less than 5% of persons in the room were of color. I think I was the only one from the Caribbean, I believe. They had built careers on the Caribbean, written books. They'd gotten tenure. And near the end of the convening, I asked for a show of hands, how many have you been to the Caribbean, you know? Um, and I think maybe like five hands went up. Um, and I was, I was dismayed, but not surprised, right? That this happens a lot around, that here are people writing about the Caribbean, but had never been. How could you write about this space, writing books, and you haven't interacted with the people? You haven't dipped your feet in the Caribbean Sea, right? You haven't looked at the buildings to see the colonial legacies dripping off of them, off of the bureaucracies, running through the streets, running through our governances. So when I am in Trinidad, I am the embodiment of resisting other people who come to those spaces and take up space in a in a colonizing kind of way. How much of an emotional burden or weight do you feel associated with all of this? 
not to sound hyperbolic, but um, there is a burden. When you hear children's stories of being sexually abused and in a school of a thousand students, there being one social worker. And she's responsible for three other schools. When a kid is coming to school hungry, now Trinidad offers lunches um, and breakfast for children who, who can't have, but there's also a kind of level of shame. So some kids don't want other kids to see them taking the lunch, and so sometimes they don't take it, therefore they're hungry all day long. You know the research. You can't learn well if you're hungry. You're not going to learn if you, you need glasses. Your parents can't afford it and you can't see the stuff being written on the board. Um, and you're acting out and they suspend you. Therefore, you miss a week from school. Therefore, you're, you're falling even further behind. So you come back and you act out even more and you suspend it more and eventually you drop out. It's, it's a cycle. When I see these cycles and I hear all of these stories and I, I see that these kids don't have the resources that they need, yeah, it feels heavy because I, I feel guilty. I feel as if I have gotten out. I escaped the, the crushing trap of poverty. Our professor in the United States and that after I've heard their stories and I'm, I'm doing the research with, with them and I'm, I'm helping to build capacities. I'm raising funds in the U.S. to create contests in their schools, stuff like that, which is very fun, engaging for me. And my ways of giving back. At the end of the day, I still have two passports. I, I can still leave. I have that privilege. Um, that I, I don't have to live in their communities. There's a part of me that is depressing. It's heavy. And yet, despite that, what keeps me going is that I can't let my, myself get too depressed by that because I still have far more privileges than they do. And it's a kind of message I tell my own students, um, undergrad students, when I teach them here in the United States. I work with many kids who come from many wealthy backgrounds. Um, just this semester, um, a wealthy student from an Asian country, he heard me sharing my story that I just shared with you growing up in Trinidad. And he said, Professor, you know, he said, I, you know, I, my family is, is wealthy. I have never been discriminated against. I don't understand what many minorities go through. Um, I don't have that kind of empathy. How can I, how can I help? And I always say, you know, it's don't focus on minimizing yourself because of the privileges you have, but ask yourself, how can I use my privileges in community with other people to change the status quo? When you have lots of money, when you have lots of these privileges that many other folks do and that, that I do in terms of educational uh, privileges, you have, when you go into communities, you have to sit as an equal with them, um, or maybe even less than an equal because it's their community and be explicit, be transparent and say, I have all of these privileges. How can I be of service to you? And that's my disposition in my own research. Of course, I have my own ideas. Of course, in my systemic restorative practice, is my own idea, but it comes out of almost a decade of research, of, of listening to people, of listening and learning with people. And so the intervention is not entirely of my own doing. It's feedback I've gotten from parents and community leaders and students. Um, and so that's, that's a long way of answering your question. That, that's what gives me hope. That's what gets me out of the bed, I say, okay, get out of this, this slump that you're feeling, um, because the world is overwhelming, right? Of, of all that's happening in the world right now. Um, and we who have immense privilege have to get up and say, how can I be of service to those with little privilege? Okay, so how do you, or do you see the human rights framework of education and peace education in, within the context of coloniality? Global human rights architecture, I teach about it. Um, I am not one to say, throw the whole thing out. You know, the UDHR created in 1948 while colonialism was still raging around the world is a sort of new colonial Trojan horse. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, however, there are many people, millions around the world 
who, in the face of their governments, brutalizing them, killing them, violating their every human right, they still stand up and say, I am human. I am entitled to freedom. I am entitled to live. I'm entitled to work. I'm entitled to happiness. I'm entitled to a nation state that doesn't violate my very being. Right? So whether we have the UDHR or not, the discourse of human rights belongs to all of us. Um, so with that said, um, I do think, however, that the ways in which human rights architecture is sometimes enforced by particular kinds of donor logics, that is problematic. So the donor logic, you have all this money, you're pouring millions of dollars to create an intervention that's molded, um, often, again, not by that community. It's often molded from in, within the West. This has worked in the West, therefore it's going to work there. That is indeed neo-imperialism, right? No matter the intent and no matter the amount of money, right? And sometimes those interventions work, but we see sometimes they do not work. They, they backfire in massive ways. Um, and to me, it's obvious when it backfires. I'm like, you haven't involved the community from the onset, right? You're just being another colonizer, right? And so my work is, is absolutely undergirded by the ethic of liberation at the end of the day. That everybody wants to be free. Everybody deserves to be free. And when I say free, I just don't mean materially free, but like financially free. I like Trinidad, you know, the Caribbean. Trinidad, not so much, but other Caribbean islands and many countries around the world bound by the monies that they are taking from IMF and World Bank. That's another form of slavery, right? And so when I say liberation, I mean on all of those levels that nations, especially post-colonial nations, just being given, you know, just write off all of their loans, IMF and World Bank, forgive all of their loans, let them have a fresh start. And I would love to see a sort of non-aligned movement 2.0 where, where formerly colonized nations can come together to re-envision a different kind of global order. Um, and so the human rights framework to me um, is about the ethic of liberation, right? And when you asked about the this coin of coloniality and modernity, yeah, they are intricately intertwined. That when we talk about the modern era, we also talk about the colonial era because they're not they're not disconnected, right? This notion of modernity it came straight out of the colonial era. Eric Williams, who's a Trinidadian, wrote Capitalism and Slavery, and in that book he connected right colonialism to capitalism. Right, that he says that the engine of capitalism is slavery, right, and that many modern day economists and historians they do not talk about that, right, and so again, this kind of Foucaultian historicity is important. How do we connect the contemporary to the history? Um, and so to bring all that back to the people, um, how can the people take human rights architecture and make it their own, right? Because Many peoples, indigenous peoples, have been practicing notions of liberation for millennia. They have been co-opted and erased. And so I mentioned before the three R's, but I didn't go into detail about what those three R's are. They are simply put, remember, restore, and re-envision. We have to remember who we were. Right? African peoples who were taken from the continent, they have rich histories. Indian peoples who came as indentured laborers, rich histories. We need to remember our rich history, remember where we came from. Right? Then also restore. Restore as in repair. Repair the damages that have been wrought by colonialism. Right? Because if we do not repair our wounds, we are apt to repeat them. So we take our rememberings, rich histories of who we are, we repair the damages done to us individually, also in community, so that we stop injuring each other. And we put those two R's together for the third R, re-envision. Because we cannot re-envision radical alternative 
bright, just, safe, sustainable futurities without remembering who we were and without repairing um, the ways in which we have been damaged. And those three R's, simple R's, remember, restore, re-envision. You take those three R's together and those are the three R's that undergird, undergird my, my systemic restorative praxis. And I think that can be applied um, in any context, really. What's something that makes you hopeful? What's something that makes me hopeful? Um, that in my classroom, I am a hard ass. <laughs> so my students, in the moment you would see on my course evaluations, like this was so much work, this was so hard, he kicked my butt, he ran this class by iron fist. I tell them that, that I am being so hard on them because they are literally, this is not hyperbole, there are literally millions of students around the world who want access to higher education and that they will never have it. So that we who have it right now, that we will, my phrase is we will sweat. <laughs> we will sweat on behalf of those students who do not have the chance to be here right now. And so when I see students come back years later, they're now in their jobs or they've gotten a master's, they're pursuing a PhD, and they're writing an email, they come and tell me, thank you for being so hard on me because when I went to grad school, I was able to be conversant because you pushed me hard enough. You taught me about Foucault. You taught me about Paulo Freire. Thank you. Thank you so much. You opened my eyes to seeing the world in a different way. I couldn't appreciate it then, but now I can. And that gives me the hope to continue being the hard ass that I am, continue making the students sweat because I'm sweating alongside them. It's not as if I am not sometimes squirming with talking about race in the classroom with my white students who come from very privileged, rich backgrounds. I'm like, I must sweat, you must sweat, because if we cannot have these tough conversations in the classroom, it is no wonder that people don't have the skills to talk about race and class in this country. We stay in our enclaves. We do not talk about these issues. We do not sweat after we leave undergrad. And it's no wonder that these intractable issues are still at play in our country. Well, Hakim, thank you so much for being here and sharing your work with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Conversations from the Leading Edge is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. This episode was recorded at the WKCR studio. Peter T. Coleman is the executive director at AC4. I'm Rachel Kirk, your host and communication supervisor, and Mariana Casalato is our producer. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnson. That's all for today's show. See you next time.